You know, if you went to a, a Christian conference and you had seminar A, spiritual warfare, seminar B, had to be an apostle and a prophet, seminar C, had to be a brilliant worship leader, seminar D, had to love one another in the body of Christ, my hunch is that 50% would go here, 30% here, 15% there, and 5% to go to the one on how to love one another, because we use phrases like, oh, that's axiomatic, it's obvious we love one another, I don't need to be taught that. Oh, it's axiomatic, love. I want to know how to be an apostle. I want to know how to engage in spiritual warfare. I want to know what my ministry is that will bless the church. Well, if we're not flowing 100% over here in the love of God, whatever you find in this seminar here, this seminar here, or this seminar here, you can pick it up, throw it in the biggest dustbin you can get, and then come to the cross, learn how to love, and when you've loved the way Jesus loves, you can go to the dustbin and pick it back up again, because actually it'll be helpful. Because it is the love of God in Christ that should be left as a deposit in every context we're in. So if I'm pastoring someone, if I'm teaching, if I'm engaged in prophetic work or evangelistic work in the body of Christ or in the world, and this is something which is in my system now, it hasn't always been, I want to leave people wanting more of Jesus, not less. I want to leave people knowing more of the love of God, not less. I'm not really bothered whether people say, wow, you can really teach the scriptures this morning well. I may do. It's good to do that. But it's very, very secondary. Are you more in love with Jesus when you've encountered one another or less? And that's something that's important for every angle of church, including small groups, which is what we're going to look at this morning. How do we leave people wanting more of Jesus, not less? Amen? And I need to pray because it's only the Spirit of God that can reveal these things to us. As Gideon said earlier when he's leading us in worship, our mind can often get in the way. And one of the ways in which you can get in the way is, oh, I've heard all this before. And uh, the trouble is, we may have heard it all before, but we don't always live it all before, as we have done. And Father, I pray, Father, for fresh grace on a message that many of us have heard so many times on a subject that so much has been written on. Father, there's 101 opinions in this room alone on how small groups should function. Help me to be true to the biblical pattern and the revelation of Jesus in the scriptures that you've given me. In Jesus' name, amen. You put the Oxbow Lake picture back up first, Joe. I just want to look at this very briefly. And I want to read, just leave that on. I just want to read the verse that we're going to look at because it's Acts 1 verse 8. And people who say, what is the vision of King's Church? Well, Acts 1 8 is our vision. It's actually to know God and to make him known. How do we do that? Acts 1 8, and this is what it is. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And at Pentecost, 
the Holy Spirit fell on the church. There was a fulfillment of Pentecost. There was a reversal of Babel. A river of life and power flowed out of the church at Pentecost. And it was like, you don't see it here, this is the River Seven. It's a very strong river. It's a river that blessed Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and the ends of the age. And we'll look at how that happened very shortly. And in total contrast to this here, this little oxbow lake that's cut out, when the river at some point would have just, rather than going around here like this in a big loop, would have just cut through and it would have been cut off. Now, this oxbow lake picture, three and a half years ago, had a very clear prophetic word for a leader who I respect in this nation. And this leader is a very significant man. This isn't a pastor of a local church like this. He's a very good friend. But I felt that he and his wife were in danger of becoming an oxbow lake. And because they were teachers and significant apostolic leaders, people would be following what they were teaching. And what they were teaching in a nutshell is this. And I've said this to them, so I've got a clear conscience if they hear this. You don't know who they are. Don't try and second guess who they are. I said, you are a very deep oxbow lake. You can break away from the church and set up something on your own, in your own house. And the level and depth to which God has resourced you will mean that you will still go to the grave with a significant depth of grace in him because you're a very deep oxbow lake. Alan Baker knows who I'm talking about. He's probably the only one. But I said there are people who have not got the depth that you've got who will try and follow this example. And they will dry up very quickly. And it's called deconstruction. It's where people say, well, we don't need the church anymore because the church is full of empire, it's full of power, and there's a lot of stuff that's true in that. We don't need to be church gathered. We just need to relate to one another in social media, relate to one another in a region, have a home where we have a meal together. And it all sounds very, very, very good until you open up the Scriptures until you start sitting under the feet of other men like Tim Keller and Don Carson. I don't know them, but you read their books, and you get into their theology. And then you read people like, I won't read, um, Eugene Peterson, Roger Forster, and others, and you think, there's something not right about this model. Because if it is that well established, why is it great men of God have written gracious, loving books and articles suggesting these oxbow lakes where you just do it yourself on your own are dangerous. And I say that because when the early church was born, it was a visible movement, a visible family. There was a togetherness. There was a diversity and unity. Diversity and unity isn't people breaking off from the stream and just doing their own thing. A diversity in unity is a little bit like the Amazon Basin. If you've got an aerial shot of the Amazon Basin, you've got this great river Amazon and all these tributaries flowing from it. And there's a lovely diversity in our unity, but we are connected to the main flow of life that is the body of Christ, that is the Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost, that is the river that Ezekiel spoke about that is ankle, knee, into the point where you end up swimming in this river. 
And when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church in Acts, and this is a very brief two-minute summary before we look at it in more detail, it was through homes and churches meeting in homes that the gospel spread through the Roman Empire. And so you will have letters to the church that meet in Chloe's house, in the house of Stephanus, in the house of uh, Priscilla and Aquila. And the church was a house church movement. There weren't buildings. You couldn't have buildings for one big reason. If you're saying Jesus is Lord, the Roman Empire is saying Caesar's Lord. Jesus is Kyrios, Caesar's Kyrios. Jesus is Lord, Caesar's Lord. If Caesar's Lord, Jesus can't be. So we are not having this cult, this way, this behavior that is coming out of Judaism being established. It's certainly not going to have big prominence in big, in, in big temples because it will challenge Caesar is Lord. And what they did, they met in homes You read the book of Acts, and they kept meeting, they kept praying, they prayed for boldness, because they got a vision to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Their cell groups, their house groups, their house churches, their house movements were fueled by this vision of a risen Christ who poured out a spirit on Pentecost of the Holy Spirit, baptizing the church, who'd given them a vision that I am with you even to the ends of the age. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. No Caesar is greater than Jesus as Lord. Every Caesar will bow, every kingdom will bow, every name will bow and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Go, I'm with you. And as you read through the book of Acts and as you read through church history, there is a radical church history in the first 400 years of the church. Up until, well, first 300 plus years, up until the conversion of an emperor called Constantine. And up until Constantine's conversion, the church met in homes. Houses were shaken in prayer. The gospel broke out of Jerusalem. It spread into Samaria. It broke out into Asia Minor. Thomas and a number of other disciples went and established the Nestorian church over in India and beyond. Europe became part of the great mission field. Paul went to Rome, planted a gospel church there. Or rather, it was already there, but he established what was already there. It was magnificent. And it was fueled by boiler rooms of prayer, homes, houses, where people met. You can read it, Acts 2.42. It's a great little window. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayer and to the fellowship. They were the four wheels of the car that vehicled the gospel through homes, through little groups, just meeting together, who refused to acknowledge that Caesar was Lord. No buildings. Constantine gets converted, and Christianity goes from being a persecuted minority that's on the growth curve to being an accepted majority. Buildings become more important, robes and sacraments become more important, and in the end the church actually contracts a little bit by comparison to what it had done in the first 400 years. And there's always been, and always will be, since that conversion of Constantine, two streams of Christianity. There's institutional stuff and inspirational, and the institutional stuff is all about robes and ceremonies, cardinals, papes popes and stuff. Nothing wrong if that's inspired. 
But there's always been an inspirational flow that's taken the book of Acts seriously. The Quakers. Why were they called Quakers? They were called Quakers because George Fox and his early Quakers, when the Holy Spirit fell on them, they trembled. And it wasn't having a goosebump moment singing your favorite Tim Hughes song. The Holy Spirit fell on them and they knew that the Spirit of God was real and that the gospel was real. And actually, that's why they were called Quakers. They trembled in the presence of God. There was another movement called the Moravian movement that was started in what we would now call East Germany. And it was a prayer movement, 24-7s, nothing new about 24-7. The Moravian prayer movement started, I think it was in 1727. And for over a hundred years in Count Zinzendorf's castle, there was a prayer meeting that prayed every day, 24-7, 24-7, 24-7. Out of that prayer movement came the birthing and the conversions of men like John and Charles Wesley. Out of that came the Methodist movements that radicalized Britain when France was going under revolution at the same time. Now these were houses, homes, estates. These weren't big buildings. These were homes that had caught a vision. Acts 1.8. Wow, if we pray, devote ourselves to one another, if we live out the apostolic teachings of Jesus, we can turn the world inside out. We can turn Lordswood inside out. We can turn Southampton inside out. The reason I'm saying this, and we're now going to look at it in a little bit more, is when we come to small groups, I don't want our small groups to be a little oxbow lake that just dries up after a while. We've got to be connected to something far bigger in terms of flow, history, and destiny. I've been in church leadership for years now, and there's a lot of recycled cell groups, house groups, life groups, together groups, you name it. I spoke to John Griffiths, a very good friend of mine, the other day and said, John, how do you do cell groups and get them to last and be vibrant for more than 18 months? And he said, you're doing well if they go for 18 months. It's the biggest difficulty most pastors face because there's only so much you can go in one cycle of hearing the same things, praying about the same things. There's got to be more to cell groups than that. Now, I know there's a lot of cell groups that have got more than that, so I'm only giving one particular side. Now, how did they get the gospel out to inspire and break through and do all the things they did in Acts? If you want to put up the acetates now, Joe, I'll... Put the first one up. Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. How it was fueled was a church being built on the fivefold ministries. Apostle, prophet, teacher, evangelist, and pastor. You're not going to get all of those in a small group. Certainly not. But it's why small groups need to be connected to the river. Because in a river, you will get those five gifts. If they're not in a local church like this, they'll be part of a bigger church, city church, or movement that you're part of. And why we need these is these. If, if we think cell groups are just evangelistic groups, oh yeah, just evangelism, that's the only thing we should be doing when we meet together, your group dynamics are shaped just by 20% of the equipping gift. Or we think, no, when groups meet together, we're, we're just pastor. We need to pastor one another and care for... And that's, they, all these are important... But if that's the only thing we're doing, it's again only 20% of the fivefold gift. Or 
If when we meet together, the only thing we should be doing is teaching one another and studying the scriptures. Nothing wrong with that either. But again, it's only 20% of the fivefold gifts. We need all five gifts shaping the culture of the church, the river that we're in, and that then reflects how we outwork our faith and discipleship together in small groups, whether it's structured or non-structured small groups. The umbrella of the fivefold ministries. And why we need all five, why I mentioned my friend earlier, is there are two things that, the, there are two places you can go and use the, see this word blow in the scriptures. One is in John 3, where it says, anyone born of the Holy Spirit is like the wind that is blowing. You don't know where it's come from or where it's going. The other is Ephesians 4 where it talks about how people can be infants in the church, tossed and blown about by every wind of doctrine that people teach. Now, why we need fivefold ministries is so that each of the gifts regulate each other, and you get a complete counsel of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. A wind of doctrine is when you get one thing said that's overemphasized at the expense of other equally important truths. So one of the things that's expressed in certain movements is the importance of the Father heart of God. And I fully agree with the Father heart of God, but there are certain churches and movements, their understanding of the Father heart of God is more to do with Sabellianism, which is a cult in the past. It's actually not actually authentic. It's not Trinitarian. And when I hear people talk about the Father heart of God, I'm thinking we worship a trinity, Where's the Son? Where's the Holy Spirit? You can't just cut off the Father, relegate the Son and the Spirit to the paragraph over here, and just sing out la-la songs to the Father. That is not Father Heart of God worship. That's why I love these songs some of you brought this morning, Gideon, that are Trinitarian. We worship the Father through the Son, and we know the Son because there's been a regeneration that's taken place in the Holy Spirit. We worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Father heart of God is revealed to us through the Son. Can't have any other way. Now, moving on to the next one. I've already touched on this, so I don't want to spend too, too much on it. There are two streams of Christianity that you can buy into. One of them is institutional. One of them is inspirational. And don't think the, ins- the institutional is just simply Anglicans and Catholics. We've got our own institutions here in churches like this. Don't think it's just the robes and the smells and bells that are all institutional. It's not. But it's these two streams. One of them serves what I would call Christendom, which is church stuff, Christianity, man-made rules, all that kind of stuff. The other is a kingdom that's dynamic, fast-flowing, making an impact, and revealing the kingdom of God through signs, wonders, works, and so on in the earth. That's why I've loved being involved in Alpha these last four or five months, just seeing eyes opened to the gospel. I love it when we pray for people and people get healed. I love it when people are spoken to prophetically and they're inspired. It's called inspiration. You can have that in an Anglican church, a Catholic church, or a church like this, You're inspirational when you're flowing in the river rather than in a little oxbow lake. Don't worry if one or two have got to go off and do stuff up at sparklers because that's what people are doing. 
inspirational. And so in our small groups, I want us to have inspirational groups that have caught Acts 1-8 as a vision. I'd like to equip and be involved with others equipping cell group leaders to implement Acts 1-8 so that actually there is something of a movement and a river flowing into Southampton through this church. If we move on to the next one, because I want to be quick. I've already said that the, the, the cells need to be shaped by fivefold ministries, and there's a danger when we're not exposed to all five. Don't get me wrong, I'm into the Father heart of God, but I'm into a Trinitarian understanding, not just a modalist understanding of the Father heart of God. And why we need to have all five, it's great having Alpha. And that's shaped primarily by evangelistic gifts, but it's not long if you're doing the right things that you get a few people coming along, they get converted, and suddenly you need beta groups. Let's pray for Simon and Claire. They're leading a beta group this week. It starts on Tuesday. And the beta group is more of a pastoral ministry complementing what you've already done in an evangelistic ministry called Alpha. And there will be other groups that will emerge in this church where people think, well, I'd like to get into a bit deeper theology than what we get on a Sunday morning. Well, some of us are quite up for that if you want it. And some of us may think, well, we want a bit more prophetic stuff. Well, I'm up for that as well. And so are others. But it has to have an order to it as well. It has to have something of a structure that we can actually say, well, I know where to go to get this. I know where to go to get an alpha course. I know where to go to get a beta course. I know where to go to a prayer meeting. I know where to go to get X, Y, Z. Next one, Joe. I think the important thing about any group is that it's built on mutual relationship. Again, a good friend of mine, he's not alive now, but he said one of the dangers that the house church went into with small groups is that it became a means and a mechanism for leaders to control what people were thinking and doing. And so you would have leaders of churches appointing cell group leaders that would just repeat what the main leader wanted everyone to hear. And a lot of people kicked against that. That's why this wind of doctrine, and is a wind of doctrine, called deconstruction, came about. It's not the only reason, but one of the reasons it came in. People kicked against being told what to believe and what to do from the main leaders via small group leaders. I must admit that's one of the reasons why I've probably neglected small groups because I hate the thought of, of anyone being controlled by a group of people where you've got a pope and a few little cardinals in a church telling everybody what to believe. But that happens, and there is a danger of that. But we are our relation, relationally, we need to be our brother's keeper. It's important that we know what is going on in one another's lives. It's important. I, you can't know what's going on in my life unless you see my flesh and blood. I don't mind being told or being kept up to date by people through emails or texts, but there's something about looking at the white of someone's eyes to see their joy or to see their pain and to identify with that joy or pain. There is something about contact that is important you know there'd be something wrong in my marriage if the only time I spoke to Fiona was via text and email there'd be something very wrong you know it'd be okay on a Monday morning if Fiona left a note saying when you come home tonight I won't be in but the sausages in the freezer you can cook them in the microwave and I'll see you tomorrow morning when we wake up I could get away with that for a day if on the Tuesday it was same note 
There's a spaghetti bolognese that are cooked that you can defrost and put in the microwave, eat it. I'll be there on Wednesday morning because I'm seeing my mates tonight. I'd be thinking, oh dear. <laughs> on the Wednesday, if I woke up and it was another note, Simon, I'm going over to see my mom today. I won't be back till tomorrow. There's a bowl of soup and a piece. I'd be thinking, well, I can cook for myself. I'm a better cook than you, Fiona, in some way. Maybe I'm not. <laughs> Bit of a, she wouldn't mind me saying that. Those of you who have meals with us, you can check it out with Fiona when you see her, definitely. And if I'm wrong, you can either stone me or forgive me according to, accordingly. But there'd be something wrong. Then when you get to the weekend, it's, oh, I've got something planned. Oh, sorry, Simon, uh, I'm off again. I've got a we- women's weekend, and I'm going over there with some friends. Now, if that was the way we related, I know it's a bit extreme, in the end, you'd have no marriage. You wouldn't have a relationship. And we can't do that in marriage. Well, I don't think we can do that in church. I like seeing faces. I like being around people. I don't like being on my own. I like it when I see friends who I think, wow, you're not the same person that you were. Wow, you've really changed. It's fantastic the way you took initiative then. It's brilliant the way this marriage has flourished. I find that really inspiring. And I find it inspiring. Because it triggers faith that God's here, he's doing something. It's nice to get a text and a card and an email. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with that. They can be very powerful. But it's equally helpful to have face-to-face contact. We are wanting to be relationally our brother's keeper. Now, I put down here, I've already touched on this, but it might be worth reading it, Proverbs 27, verse 8. The danger of radical individualism. This is where the Oxbow Lake comes in. Proverbs 27.8 says this. I don't want to misquote it. Like a bird that wanders from its nest is a man who wanders from his place. Now, for all those of you who like bird watching, put your ears to your head now so you don't hear these stories. Those of you who like birds. Those of you who like cats... Well, you can open your ears and listen to this one. When you get a bird straying from its nest and a bird that may not be able to fly because it's got a damaged wing, and many people in the body of Christ are like damaged birds, they can't fly, and they go away from the nest, and what drives them from the nest can sometimes be fear, rejection, pain, all those kind of things, but they're damaged, they can't fly, and you think you are very vulnerable to a stray cat here, you're very vulnerable. And you see these birds hopping, and you think, there's nothing I can do. I can't pick this up and put it in a box and take it down to the RSBCA because I'm frightened of picking up animals. I don't like picking up birds and stuff. It's true, I don't like picking up animals. We lo- our next-door neighbour had a guinea pig that got into our garden, and it got into the sewer pipe. And I had an opportunity to save it by just grabbing it and taking it out. While Kim was watching, I was thinking, oh, I can't touch, I can't touch animals. And I was watching this guinea pig go to its... It was awful. <laughs> it was awful. And it's because I, I felt, ooh, I can't touch, uh, I, can't, I can't do it. I couldn't do it. But if you watch this bird hopping along with a broken wing, or a broken leg, and it's an illustration of many of us, many of us, when we came to Christ and still are in Christ, have got broken wings and broken legs, 
metaphorically speaking, we hop away from the church, we hop away from the nest that can actually protect us most, partly because we fear rejection, partly because we're insecure or whatever, or partly because we've been hurt by leaders who've controlled and all that. But in the end, there's a cat that will come and take the bird out. And in spiritual terms, there are ferocious wolves out there. There are people that will take you out. We need one another. I need people in this church. I regularly pray with Martin every month and we open up to one another. He's chair of trustees. It's a way of being accountable. I regularly pray with Alan Baker. I will regularly share my heart and struggles with other friends in this church. And I wouldn't be here today with any degree or measure of grace, and I don't consider myself to be anything, if I didn't have face-to-face, eye-to-eye contact with people. It's ever so straightforward. We need one another. It's more important than, you know, you care to realize. And there's this danger of radical individualism. That's the Oxbow Lake. That's why this friend of mine, I had to speak it out to him because... And he received it, but then turned it round and said, well, the future of the church is Oxbow Lakes. And I thought, no, it's not. That's just your reconstruction of it. We need one another. Next one. When we come to putting together groups, and there's a survey that we're going to give out to people to put down... John Mears has written the survey, and he's been very good, because he said the first thing we're going to do here, Simon, is make sure on this survey the questions aren't the ones you want people to have for them to answer so that they are telling you what you want to hear. And I wasn't going to do that, because I'm self-aware enough to know that, but I was absolutely thrilled he said it. And as a 21-year-old, he had the confidence to say that to someone more than twice his age. Because... There is an inward curvature in all of us that wants to serve ourselves. So I'd like the surveys to be done and given back to him, and he will critique it with a group of us, and we'll see what comes out in terms of the flavor and shape of what we want. Now, obviously, things stand or fall on leadership, so we will want people leading groups and those leaders to be part of a wider pastoral team that we're going to be putting together over the next few weeks. And we don't want to violate people who think, well, I've already got enough relationship without a structure. Now, I don't have a problem with that at one level. I don't. As long as that's genuine and not just you being in danger of hopping along like a bird, straying from the nest. It's important. Now, what interests do we have? Now, some people, these are some of the things that I've known that people like in this church. People like dog walking, bird watching, and astronomy. I'm not saying you build a a cell group around dog walking, astronomy, and bird watching. But I think it's really important when we have groups that the interests that people have come out into the open and we actually begin to start to enjoy being enriched by other people's interests. Now, I would struggle like mad being enriched by people who like dog walking. Because, uh, well, I, I tried it. I did try this with Tim Peppiot. Those of you who remember Tim Peppiot, he had a little snowy white dog. And we used to meet up. He said, I'd like to go prayer walking with you, Simon. I said, that's great. He said, the only thing is, I'd like to go prayer walking with my dog. I thought, I'll know. So we went with this dog. And it's not that you go walking with one dog, because one dog attracts another dog and another dog and another dog. And you've always got someone who's got a dog not on a lead that is ferocious, murdy, and dirty. And they like to jump up, and they always say, oh, no, they don't hurt, they don't bite. 
and you think, they do. <laughs> but actually, confession time, for me, the bite's actually worse than the dirt. I'm thinking, I don't want my jeans cleaned. I, don't want to, I, don't want to, I can't stroke a dog, because if I stroke a dog, there's no taps for me to wash my hands and all those kind of things. I mean, I've got to get over this hygiene thing. And um, now, I'll tell you something else. Andy, Le- Andy Lester is at the back. One of the best evenings Fiona and myself had for years was when we went with Rob and Sarah Worley, some of you will know them as friends, with Andy and a few others doing some bird watching, night jar, on moon, Moonshine Common, is it? Or what was it? Half Moon Common, not Moonshine. Half Moon Common. <laughs> So that's where all the winos go. <laughs> if, you want, if you want some moonshine, go there. Half Moon Common. And we went bird watching. And I tell you, I'm going to big you up. This guy is outstanding at that stuff. When you get a chance to go bird watching, early morning Doris call, calls or night jars or anything like that, if you're in a group with Andy and that's available, I'd encourage you to do it and take your friends with you because that's how this Acts 1-8 vision is outworked. You don't need to bring a Rob and Sarah to church. They wouldn't want to come here anyway, probably. But you can certainly be the kingdom of God with them in a common interest. It was a fantastic evening with them. Then you've got astronomy. And there's, what interests do we have? So when we're meeting together as groups, what, pe- what are people's interests? Not everybody likes to study a Bible. My default mode in a group, oh, let's have a Bible study. It was Colin McQueen that pointed it out, very helpful. Simon, you don't do Bible studies, you just preach. And then you sit down and think everyone's agreed with you. And that's true. So don't come to me for Bible study, because with me it's too much of this and not enough of that in terms of listening to what really people want to hear. Do you understand? Well, I have got better at Bible study, I think, now. I have got better. I do listen more. Others, when they meet together as soul groups, they, they, they say, well, it's great, but we don't always want to keep praying about the same person's problems or issues. I can understand that. Maybe a soul group isn't the place to be opening up your deepest needs. You may need to find two or three people in that group where you can do that with rather than hit the whole group. Probably. See how it works. Next one, Joe. Um, and we've, we've finished, we'll be finished literally in about a couple of minutes. What shelf life does a group have? I think one of the reasons small groups can sometimes become stale is we don't ask, well, what shelf life has this group got? I was really inspired by my son David and his wife Emma. They're getting involved in a church called Gas Street up in um, Birmingham, and we went up there the other day, and boy, did I feel my age. I thought, whoa, this is high-tech music and everyone about 30 and under. Well, not everyone, a few people our age. And it was... uh, So I do feel for people my age and above, actually. It was the first real culture shock because here's my son leading... It was an outstanding carol service. I thought, cool, this is... Yeah, you're gifted. And I said, why do you do cell groups? What do you do? Do you you get to study the Bible? Do you pray? Trying to sort of make... Oh, yeah, we do all that, Dad, but we do it over eight weeks at the moment. We've got what we call... A group of us meet together, we have a beer and we have a board game and then we think, do we want to go to watch one of the local football teams play together over these next eight weeks? And I thought, I'd like that, I'd like doing that myself. (laughs) Um, But it's only going to last for eight weeks because after that we might want to do something different or we might want to mix with... And at the moment, their next group they're doing is an eight-week course. The 
I don't know how he's doing this. He didn't tell me what they were, but this guy's doing the eight days of discipleship with Jesus. And I thought, well, that's great. That's another good, that's, that's good, good model. He told me what some of them were. And I think shelf life's important. Families change. If you go, if you look at a, you know, families change. I mean, our families change. We don't do family now as we did when David was down here and Amy was down there. We do it very differently. And I think as we grow as Christians, and we should be growing, hopefully, we can outgrow structures that we're in. One of the reasons some people find cell groups a little bit difficult, I'm not saying everyone, is they outgrown their need for that kind of arena. They still want fellowship and friendship, but how you pastor a pastor is very different to how you pastor a young Christian. How I would pastor Cyril and Gabrielle Thomas is very different to how I would pastor someone like Barbara who got converted on Alpha. How I would relate and engage with people who have got significant grace and mileage in their life in God is very different to how I would engage and disciple someone who's a relatively young Christian. You can't treat them all as equals at that level because you'd be blinding one with science or patronizing another. You've got to cut the cloth accordingly. We've got to allow people to grow out of structures. So I think families change. And relationships as well. We've got to know who our three are and who our nine are in terms of the Jesus model of discipleship. If you look at a family photograph at a wedding, you get the bride and the groom and the ones that are the real bodyguards around them, you know, mom, dad, brother, sister. And then you find right at the edge, second cousin down. Well, second cousin down isn't likely to be a part of your innermost circle. I've never seen any of Fiona's cousins. And she's never seen any of mine. But we're related. But we do see the ones who we are close to. And I think in a church, we need to be freed up from feeling we've got to know everyone and be intimate with everyone. And everyone's got to know everything about everyone. Because after a certain size, you can't do that. We do have to know who our threes are and who our nines are, using the Jesus model of three and nine, twelve. And structured cell groups... What I mean by that is people who are leading them, people who are facilitating them, it's got an X18 flow in it, and it's got all the creative gifts in that group coming to the, uh, into the party, whether they're geographical or whether they're non-geographical. I mean by that there's a group of people who live on the other side of Southampton, and it might be that, oh, maybe a group of them could form a cell group of their own. 